This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of scaphoid fracture nonunion from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Scaphoid fracture nonunions occur in 5 to 25% of scaphoid fractures following treatment and are more common in older patients, smokers, and when there is a delay in initial treatment of the fracture. Diagnosis is made with a combination of radiographs and a CT. MRI studies may be used to assess for avascular necrosis. Treatment is generally open reduction and internal fixation, or ORIF, with bone grafting. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence, scaphoid fracture nonunion occurs in 5-10% to 10% of patients following immobilization. Some studies show nearly 25% following surgical fixation. As far as the demographics, scaphoid fracture nonunion parallels that of scaphoid fractures. There is a 2 to 1 male to female ratio and is most common in the third decade of life. As far as the anatomic location for scaphoid fracture nonunion, proximal pole fractures are most common. Risk factors include vertical oblique fracture patterns, displacement of greater than 1 millimeter, advancing age, and nicotine use. Moving on to the etiology, with respect to the pathophysiology, the pathoanatomy involves lack of stability and or biology leading to nonunion at the fracture site. Associated conditions include osteonecrosis and scaphoid nonunion advanced collapse or a snack wrist, which we'll discuss in more detail in another podcast episode. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, blood supply, and biomechanics. Starting with osteology, the scaphoid is a complex three-dimensional structure described as resembling a boat or a twisted peanut. It is oriented obliquely from the extremity's long axis with implications for advanced imaging techniques. The scaphoid is the largest bone in the proximal carpal row, and greater than 75% of the scaphoid bone is covered by articular cartilage. The scaphoid articulates with the radius, lunate, trapezium, trapezoid, and capitate. Moving on to the blood supply, the major blood supply to the scaphoid is the dorsal carpal branch, which is a branch of the radial artery. It enters the scaphoid in a non-articular ridge on the dorsal surface and supplies the proximal 80% of the scaphoid via retrograde blood flow. Minor blood supply comes from the superficial palmar arch, which is a branch of the volar radial artery. It enters the distal tubercle and supplies the distal 20% of the scaphoid. Note that the blood supply to the scaphoid creates a vascular watershed and subsequently a poor fracture healing environment. Moving on to the biomechanics, the scaphoid is the link between the proximal and distal carpal row. Both intrinsic and extrinsic ligaments attach and surround the scaphoid. And know that the scaphoid flexes with wrist flexion and radial deviation and extends during wrist extension and ulnar deviation, which is the same as the proximal row. Look out for the podcast episode about wrist ligaments and biomechanics for more detail. Moving on to the classification of scaphoid fracture nonunion, it is generally divided into stable or unstable nonunion. Stable is characterized as maintenance of length and overall alignment with a fibrous union, while unstable is characterized with loss of length or alignment with signs of carpal instability or degenerative chondral changes. Moving on to the presentation of scaphoid fracture nonunion, be sure to take a careful history to detail the chronology of injury and treatment. The history may describe a remote traumatic event, and be sure to obtain previous operative reports and imaging studies if applicable. As far as common symptoms of scaphoid fracture nonunion, some patients will deny any significant symptoms. However, other patients will have wrist pain that is worsened with motion, and patients may also have difficulty with grip. 
On physical exam, inspection may reveal variable degree of swelling, tenderness near the fracture site, and be sure to note the location of previous incision or incisions. In terms of motion assessment, be sure to document flexion extension and pronation supination. A variable degree of motion loss may be attributed to post-immobilization stiffness or mechanical derangement. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a neutral rotation PA and lateral and a semi-pronated or 45-degree oblique view. Another important view is the scaphoid view. Findings on radiographs may include cysts, sclerosis, bone resorption at the fracture site, hardware loosening or failure, carpal instability, humpback deformity, and snack arthritic changes. A CT scan is the best modality to evaluate non-union and for surgical planning, and it's also indicated when there's suspicion for scaphoid non-union advanced collapse arthritic changes. As far as views, CT should be oriented in the plane of the scaphoid with 1mm cuts, and most protocols can reduce metal artifact in the post-surgical setting. As far as findings on CT, this modality provides better detail of the fracture pattern orientation, displacement, residual fracture gap, and angulation. Other findings may include bony resorption at the fracture site, it may show technical errors from previous surgery, and evidence of scaphoid non-union advanced collapse, which will manifest with scaphoid, radial styloid, capitate, and or lunate subchondral cyst formation. An MRI can be indicated when there's a concern for osteonecrosis. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, it is inconsistent and of questionable utility. However, gadolinium enhancement may improve quality. The differential diagnosis for scaphoid fracture non-union is scaphoid non-union advanced collapse wrist, which we'll discuss in more detail in another podcast episode. As far as diagnosis, scaphoid fracture non-union diagnosis is confirmed by history, physical exam, radiographs, and CT. An MRI may be needed to assess for avascular necrosis. Treatment for scaphoid fracture non-union can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes cast immobilization, which is indicated when there is a lack of prior appropriate immobilization duration, as you may immobilize up to six months following surgery. Another indication for cast immobilization is refusal of surgery. Contraindications for cast immobilization includes technical error with improper screw placement, implant failure, and or distraction at the fracture site with loss of reduction. As far as outcomes of cast immobilization, 69% of surgically stabilized fractures without technical error or fracture displacement achieve union by three months with cast and addition of pulsed electromagnetic stimulation. Operative options include open reduction internal fixation with bone grafting. This is indicated when there is lack of fracture union by six months. This can be due to technical error with improper implant placement, implant failure, distraction at the fracture site with loss of reduction, as well as non-union without osteonecrosis or scaphoid non-union advanced collapse. Outcomes of operative intervention include 92% union rate and is likely the best outcome when there is non-union due to simple technical error during the index procedure. As far as bone graft options, you have bone morphogenic protein or BMP as well as platelet-derived plasma or PRP, an inlay or RUS non-vascularized corticocancellus bone graft, interposition or FISC non-vascularized corticocancellus bone graft, vascularized local corticocancellus bone graft, free vascularized corticocancellus bone graft from the medial femoral condyle, free vascularized osteochondral graft from the medial femoral trochlea, and free vascularized corticocancellus bone graft from the iliac crest. So let's talk about each of these options in a bit more detail. Starting with bone morphogenic protein or BMP and platelet-derived plasma or PRP, 
Indications for using these are non-union without scaphoid non-union advanced collapse and is used as an adjunct to ORIF, which avoids technical challenges and resource utilization of free flaps. As far as outcomes, case series with BMP and PRP show high success rates. Moving on to inlay or Roos non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone grafts, this is indicated when there's no adjacent carpal collapse or excessive flexion deformity, otherwise known as a humpback scaphoid, and it's also indicated when using the volar approach. As far as outcomes, there is a 92% union rate when using an inlay Roos non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft. Moving on to the interposition Fisk non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft, Indications include adjacent carpal collapse and excessive flexion deformity, or a humpback scaphoid, as well as the volar approach, just as in the case of an inlay ruse non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft. Outcomes for this bone graft option is 72 to 95% union rates. Moving on to vascularized local cortical cancellous bone grafts, there are multiple techniques, such as the Methulin, Zeidenberg, Soterianos, etc., Indications include waist fractures with proximal pole osteonecrosis, lack of intraoperative punctate bleeding at the fracture, and lack of pancarpal arthritis. As far as outcomes, there is 82% good to excellent outcomes. Moving on to free vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft from the medial femoral condyle, this is a cortical periosteal flap that provides highly osteogenic periosteum. Indications include scaphoid waist fracture non-unions with proximal pole osteonecrosis, lack of intraoperative punctate bleeding at the fracture, and lack of pancarpal arthritis or collapse. As far as outcomes, one study shows 100% union achieved by 13 weeks. Moving on to free vascularized osteochondral graft from the medial femoral trochlea. This is an osteochondral graft, and it's indicated in the setting of scaphoid waist fracture non-unions with proximal pole osteonecrosis and loss of cartilage, lack of intraoperative punctate bleeding at the fracture, and lack of pancarpal arthritis or collapse. As far as outcomes, studies report over a 90% union rate. Finally, moving on to free vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft from the iliac crest. This is indicated in the setting of scaphoid waist fracture non-unions with proximal pole osteonecrosis, lack of intraoperative punctate bleeding at the fracture, and lack of pancarpal arthritis or collapse. As far as outcomes, there is a 76% union rate reported. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. As far as cast immobilization, the technique can be a long or a short arm cast. Post electromagnetic field stimulation may be added, and serial radiograph should be done to confirm the maintenance of fracture alignment and apposition. Moving on to open reduction internal fixation, the approach can be a volar or dorsal approach which is dictated by the previous incision and implant. A plate is applied through the volar approach. As far as the technique, first the fracture site is curetted to a bleeding surface. Cancellus autograft or allograft bone chips may be added to the fracture site if desired. Bone morphogenic protein or BMP or platelet-derived protein or PRP may also be added to add osteoinductivity. Then you will have a choice of K-wire, plate, screw, or staple osteosynthesis. A headless compression screw can be placed distal to proximal in the volar approach or proximal to distal for the dorsal approach. The plate is applied to provide a volar buttress. Know that a K-wire has the advantage of removal to avoid symptomatic hardware. Now let's talk about these bone grafting techniques in a bit more detail. The inlay or Roos bone graft is a non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft, and the approach is the volar approach using the interval between the FCR and the radial artery. As far as the technique, there are various modifications of the originally described procedure. 
but the cortical cancellous bone graft is harvested from the distal radius or iliac crest, and then the graft is placed within the scaphoid acting as a cortical strut to restore length, alignment, and angulation. Then a headless screw is placed across the fracture site and know that bleeding from the fracture intraoperatively is highly predictive of a vascularized proximal pole fragment. Moving on to the interposition or FISC bone graft, this is a non-vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft, and the approach is also the volar approach as in the case of an inlay ruse bone graft. The technique will involve a cortical cancellous distal radius, which is what was described in the original technique, or the iliac crest, which is the Fernandez modification, used as an anterior wedge to restore length, alignment, and angulation. The dimensions of the graft to be harvested are calculated preoperatively. Now let's talk about a vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft from the dorsal distal radius, otherwise known as a Zeidenberg 1-2 ICSRA, which is the 1-2 intercompartmental superretinacular artery. And the approach is the dorsal approach between the first and second dorsal extensor compartments, and know that the artery is overlying the extensor retinaculum. The technique involves a 1-2 intercompartmental superretinacular artery, which is a branch of the radial artery, which is harvested to provide vascularized graft from the dorsal aspect of the radius. A longitudinal capsulotomy is made overlying the scaphoid nonunion, and bone graft placement depends on nonunion location and if deformity correction is needed. Moving on to a vascularized radial cortical cancellous bone graft using a volar carpal artery, otherwise known as the Methulin method. The approach is also the volar approach, as we previously described. However, in this approach, the artery is found distal to the pronator quadratus aponeurosis and radial periosteum. The technique will involve a cortical cancellous bone graft and pedicle raised with the rim of fascia, and the graft is placed as a wedge to correct the fracture collapse or humpback deformity if present. Moving on to a vascularized radial cortical cancellous bone graft using a dorsal capsular pedicle, this is known as the Soterianos method, and the approach involves an incision centered over the fourth extensor compartment, just ulnar to Lister's tubercle. As far as the technique, the pedicle uses the artery of the fourth dorsal compartment located ulnar and distal to Lister's tubercle. A cortical cancellous bone graft is harvested with the dorsal wrist capsule and placed into the fracture site in an inlay fashion. Moving on to a free vascularized bone graft from the medial femoral condyle, the approach involves a longitudinal incision along the posterior border of the vastus medialis. The vastus medialis is lifted anteriorly, and then the descending genicular vessels are identified proximally near the adductor hiatus and dissected distally to the periosteum overlying the condyle. You will then identify and protect the MCL, which is distal to the flap. The technique for a free vascularized bone graft from the medial femoral condyle involves a cortical cancellous bone graft harvested from the knee using either the descending genicular artery or superomedial genicular vessels if the descending genicular artery is too small. You will then utilize the longitudinal branch of the descending genicular artery pedicle from the superficial femoral artery. Bone graft is placed volarly as a wedge to restore length, alignment, and angulation. Keep in mind that this technique, using a free vascularized bone graft from the medial femoral condyle, requires anastomosis. Moving on to a free vascularized osteochondral graft from the medial femoral trochlea, the approach is the same as for a free medial femoral condyle graft. As far as the technique, periosteal branches from the descending genicular artery are identified at the condylar flare. The graft is harvested and the pedicle is raised. Then the avascular proximal pole is resected and the graft is placed and fixated with a headless screw, plate, or K-wire. Again, keep in mind that this technique requires anastomosis. Finally, as far as a free vascularized cortical cancellous bone graft from the iliac crest, the approach is the standard approach for an iliac crest bone graft. 
as far as the technique. You will identify the branch of the deep circumflex iliac artery, raise the cortical cancellus graft, preserving the pedicle, and then place the graft into the fracture through either a volar or dorsal approach, and this technique will also require anastomosis. Now, let's quickly talk about complications of scaphoid fracture non-union, and these include osteonecrosis, which is more common with proximal fracture patterns, and graft failure, as well as scaphoid non-union advanced collapse, which we'll talk about in more detail in another podcast episode. As far as prognosis, the natural history of disease for scaphoid fracture non-union is derangement of the normal carpal mechanics, which may lead to progressive and or persistent wrist pain, cartilage loss, and scaphoid non-union with advanced collapse or snack wrist with arthritis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, which of the following carpal pathologies would be best treated with medial femoral condyle vascularized bone grafting and open fixation? And the choices are one, chronic lunate osteochondral defect, two, acute scaphoid fracture with humpback deformity, three, proximal scaphoid avascular necrosis, four, scaphoid nonunion advanced collapse with scaphocapitate arthrosis, and five, stage one Kienbox disease. The correct answer to this question is three, proximal scaphoid avascular necrosis. So out of the available options, vascularized medial femoral condyle graft and fixation is most commonly used in the treatment of proximal scaphoid avascular necrosis and scaphoid nonunion. Free vascularized bone grafts, or VBGs, are often considered in the management of carpal bone nonunion. Various donor sites exist, including the distal radius, iliac crest, ribs, and femoral condyles. The benefits of vascularized bone graft techniques include increased bone perfusion over time, accelerated graft consolidation, and rapid repopulation by cells. However, a relative contraindication for their use is in the setting of carpal bones without an intact cartilaginous shell or advanced carpal collapse with degenerative changes. Al-Jabri et al. reviewed the use of free vascularized bone graft for non-union of the scaphoid. They noted that the union rate in medial femoral condyle vascularized bone grafts to be 100% in 56 patients. They state that descending genicular vessels are most favored due to their longer nature and their wider caliber. Jones et al. reported on the treatment of scaphoid waist nonunions with associated avascular proximal pole and carpal collapse with a medial femoral condyle bone grafting. They showed better clinical results with medial femoral condyle bone grafting compared with distal radius vascularized bone grafts. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, chronic lunate osteochondral defect may be treated non-operatively with observation only or arthroscopic osteochondral grafting with graft harvested from the lateral femoral condyle. Answer two, acute scaphoid fractures with humpback deformity rarely require free vascularized bone grafts with initial treatment. Answer four, scaphoid nonunion advanced collapse with scaphocapitate arthrosis is a relative contraindication for free vascularized bone grafts and wrist salvage procedures. Pancarpal arthritis is usually managed with arthrodesis. And finally, answer five, stage one Kienbox disease does not require open fixation techniques. Vascularized bone grafts can be utilized for stage two disease and potentially for stage three A disease. The most commonly used vascularized bone graft for this disease is based on the fourth and fifth extensor compartmental arteries, although many other techniques have been described. And moving on to the final question, a 21-year-old man reports wrist pain after a fall. He also reports that he sustained a wrist sprain the previous year. Radiographs reveal a waist scaphoid fracture with a non-union, 
humpback deformity, but no evidence of osteonecrosis. What is the best choice for surgical treatment? And the choices are one, volar approach, standard bone graft, and Kirshner wire fixation. Two, volar approach, standard bone graft, and screw fixation. Three, volar approach, vascularized bone graft, and Kirshner wire fixation. Four, dorsal approach, vascularized bone graft, and Kirshner wire fixation. And five, dorsal approach, standard bone graft, and screw fixation. The correct answer to this question is two, volar approach, standard bone graft, and screw fixation. So the patient has a scaphoid nonunion with humpback deformity. Surgical treatment should include correction of the humpback deformity with bone graft. This is best accomplished with a volar approach, non-vascularized bone graft, and screw fixation. Since there is no prior surgical treatment and no evidence of proximal pole osteonecrosis, the use of a vascularized bone graft is not necessary or recommended. Whereas both dorsal and volar approaches have been described, the humpback deformity is most easily corrected via a volar approach. This exposure allows for insertion of Kirshner wire joysticks to help correct the deformity and allow easy insertion of the bone graft. It also preserves the main dorsal blood supply to the scaphoid. Kirshner wire fixation of the fracture itself has been used in the past, but screw fixation is more secure. Fractures and non-unions close to the proximal pole may be better visualized with the dorsal approach, but correction of any deformity can be more difficult. Vascularized bone grafts are usually indicated for failed non-vascularized bone grafts or in the presence of osteonecrosis. That's all for this review about scaphoid fracture non-union. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.